Let us now turn to the passage that we read. Gospel according to Luke, chapter 23, and we may read again at verse 42. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I think I can say with every confidence that most, if not all, who are present here tonight have heard of the account of the crucified lawbreakers who were put to death on crosses on either side of Jesus. The account in Luke's Gospel sets before us how Luke recorded the proceedings at Calvary, a place where the eternal Son of God in our nature gives himself to death in the Roman place of his people or of sinners. There is much that is told us by Luke about these final hours prior to the death of Christ. Much that ought to make us all ask the question of ourselves, why did Christ have to die? For whatever else we might learn from the narrative, there is surely the lesson that the wages of sin is death. Death as the penal price for sin not just the separation of soul and body. It's much more than that. Some people welcome death in the sense that they believe it is the antidote to suffering, that it is the final release as they see it. So you have those who are supportive of what is euphemistically called assisted dying, But if you reflect for a moment, you will see that death for the Lord Jesus Christ was not a release. It was a penalty that he had to endure in order that salvation be offered to me and you as sinners. But more, that sinners who trust in him alone for salvation enjoy the certainty of salvation. His sufferings were penal. His sufferings were extremely intensive. And I come back to this. He gave himself to death. It was a willing act on his part. You know, when you and I come to die, We fight against death. You've probably seen people on their deathbed struggling with every breath to keep death at a distance, trying to prevent the onslaught of death, and it's something that we cannot do. Once death comes, we are unable to hold it back. But here Christ gives himself to death, as one who had power to lay down his life and to take it up again. So will he act on his part? 
And then Luke also tells us of the final hours of two men. Two men whose lives had been closely linked over a period we don't know for how long, except that they appear to have both been part of the underworld criminal membership. The long arm of the law had finally caught up with them, and they were sentenced to death for their crimes. To begin with, they both seem to have the same attitude to Christ. Matthew tells us in his account, the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, cannot save himself. He is the king of Jews. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And then Matthew goes on to say, And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. However, as we shall see, one of these men came to saving faith, and the other did not. Because of that, although they both died, on account of being crucified, there was a huge gulf between the way in which they both met death. One had the blessed assurance of being with Christ, but the other had no such assurance as death robbed him of life. Well, that ought to make us all ask ourselves, do we think about how we will meet death? You know, there's a huge solemnity about that moment when we pass out of time into the eternal realm. A time that will be in all of our lives unless Christ come first. Time when we shall have to put off, as the Bible calls, the earthly tempters and pass into the eternal realm. How shall we meet with the last enemy? What might be the last words we we speak, if capable of speech, of course, there is no guarantee that we will be capable of speech then, or even aware of what is taking place. Many people think that somehow, in these final moments, they will be reconciled to God. What if you're unconscious, incapable of thought, incapable of speech? What will be our final thoughts as we leave this veil of tears? Will there be an excitement, an air of anticipation that going to meet with Christ face to face? Will there be a sense of dread and great fear that we are about to face the eternal judge. We know that if we are in Christ in this life, that our eternal destiny will be glorious. But if we are out of Christ, then it will be misery throughout the endless ages of eternity. Well, however that might be,
I wish to reflect with you on the petition of this anonymous criminal before he died. I say he is anonymous because we have no name for him. And yet in some ways you feel that he is not anonymous but so well known. His petition was, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. His final words in this life, because we have no other recorded words said by him, were a prayer. They are words which I believe have much to teach us. The prayer may appear to be simple, and yet it is profound. So, three thoughts from our text. First, his prayer is a mark of spiritual life. Secondly, his prayer demonstrates faith and exercise. And thirdly, his prayer reveals a depth of spiritual insight. First of all, his prayer is a mark of spiritual life. The Bible teaches that prayer is the mark of a person who has experienced the new birth. It is the mark of a person in possession of spiritual life. Let me illustrate from the Bible. You may remember how on an occasion the Lord spoke to a man by the name of Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. That is recorded in the book of Acts. It is very evident from the response of Ananias that he was very reluctant to undertake the duty that God was placing on him unto to fulfill this mission. He was extremely sceptical about going into the company of this man Saul of Tarsus. It's as if Ananias was questioning whether even the grace of God, mighty and powerful as it is, could ever have transformed the life of such a man as Saul of Tarsus. Because you remember, he had been involved in active persecution of the Church of Christ. And so you find Ananias responding to the Lord, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done unto your saints at Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. And do you remember the marvelous encouragement that God gave to Ananias. Go, says God to Ananias, for he is a chosen instrument or a chosen vessel of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. The marvelous testament from God about this man Saul of Tarsus. He is a chosen instrument or vessel of mine. A vessel, a container that is filled by something out with itself. What became true of this choice vessel was that it was once so full of self, but through the entrance of grace, that same vessel 
was made empty. And as a mark of his emptiness, he prays. You know, by and large, it is people who are acutely aware of their emptiness who pray. In the book of Psalms, for example, you find the psalmist speak, I stretch out my hands to you. His hands are empty, an indication of the emptiness that he feels as he cries out to God. I suppose to use another biblical illustration, those who engage in prayer are like the brothers of Joseph in the Old Testament at the time of an acute famine. What was true? They brought their empty sacks to this uh, strange overseer whom they didn't recognize, who presided over the storehouses that were full in Egypt. And that's still true, is it not? Believers come in their emptiness to Jesus, whose storehouses of grace have an inexhaustible supply to meet their need. You may be here this evening, and you can testify powerfully to that very truth. You have come in your emptiness, Acutely aware that you have nothing when you come before God. Stretching out your hands to him. And the Lord has ministered to you graciously and freely and richly. And provided for you in your emptiness. Well, Saul of Tarsus prayed. So did this man on the cross. Severely pained as he was, there he is, a newborn child in the kingdom of Emmanuel, and he prays, remember me. Now what one must remember, prayer is not just something that marks out the newborn believer. It's more than that. It's not something that that is instigated for a moment and then disappears. Prayer is a constant in the life of the believer. What is prayer? Both the larger and the shorter catechisms give similar answers to the question, what is prayer? Larger catechism, prayer is an offering up of our of our desires unto God in the name of Christ by the help of the Spirit, with confession of our sins, thankful acknowledgement of his mercies, the shorter catechism, perhaps with which we are more familiar. Prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ, with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. And every time I read these definitions of prayer, in either of the catechisms. It reminds me of a definition of prayer that I read many, many years ago in a book written by a man named Octavius Winslow. The title of the book was The Work of the Holy Spirit. And this is what he had to say about prayer. Prayer is the expression of want, the desire of need, the acknowledgement of poverty, 
the language of dependence, the breathing of a soul that has nothing in itself but hangs on God for all its wants. You know, I liked Winslow's definition of prayer then, and I still like it now, all these years later. God delights to hear the petitions of his children. His ear is open to that cry as the hearer of prayer. You know how mothers, how their ears are sensitive to the cry of infants. They would hear the cry of an infant, possibly before anyone else. That's how God's ear is, sensitive to the petitions of his people. And by way of encouragement, the Lord says to them, Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. It's quite a thought that the uncreated, infinite God meets with the created, finite being at the throne of grace. Prayer, then, is a mark of spiritual life in the heart of this man. The Gospel writer, as if to underline this fact, tells us when and where this prayer was offered. You know, I doubt if anyone around Calvary that day could have predicted that such words would ever tumble from the lips and the heart of this anonymous man. A man who by his own admission was justly condemned by the civil courts. We receive, he says, the jury ward of our deeds. He's not questioning the judgment passed on. He sees it as being just. So here is a justly convicted criminal paying the penalty of his crimes. Quite true. Many would say, oh, there's no hope for this character. But you know the just judge of all the earth didn't say that. He didn't say that. Does that not teach us that we should never despair of anyone's salvation as long as they live, no matter how unlikely to us it might appear. When you remember and have such examples of Christ's power to save, no one is too wicked, no one too hard or too worldly to be made a Christian. For with Christ, nothing is impossible. That ought to be a source of encouragement. If you are praying for someone who gives no indication of showing any interest in the things of God and you're on the point of despair, don't give up. Carry on praying because you never know when God is going to intervene in that life and bring them into union by faith with himself. There would be no hope for any of us were it not for the greatness of divine mercy in being meted out to undeserving sinners like you and me. You know, the Bible gives us a picture in the book of Psalms of a handful of corn planted 
in the most unlikely location, a rocky, barren location, where you might expect no growth on tops of mountains high. You wouldn't even go to the hilltops, nearest hilltops to plant corn, let alone the top of a barren mountain. And yet the Bible tells us of corn and handful in the earth on top of mountains high. And although the expectation might be little or no growth, the Bible paints a very different picture. With prosperous fruit shall shake like trees on Lebanon that be. And the trees of Lebanon were great and strong. So here is this man. A prominent example of that truth being fulfilled. In fact, every person brought into the kingdom of Christ is testimony to the fulfillment of that truth. What was so hard, so flint-hard and so unpromising as the heart of this man? Or of your heart and my heart? I cannot say with certainty how the handful of seed came to fall into the heart of this man who on the face of it seems such an an unlikely person to be converted. Some would suggest that it was the prayer of Christ uttered from the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Some would suggest that it was the meekness of Christ that impressed itself on this man. It is possible, but I don't know. What I do know and can say with certainty is that a handful of seed fell into the heart of this man. What I can also assert is that where Christ reigns in a heart, there will come a day of great harvest. You know, there is no poor harvest in the kingdom of grace. It is all a rich and a full harvest. In the kingdom of grace. This man then and lightly as it may have appeared. Was praying. The fruit of amazing grace. And remember when he was praying. It was the hour of the powers of darkness. Christ himself states. This is your hour and the power of darkness. The spiritual forces of evil thought that victory was in their grasp as they grappled with the Prince of Light and controlled and, yes, even encouraged the hostile actions of those gathered around the cross. Yet, I say, yet in the very midst of the works of darkness, a work of light was ongoing. How encouraging That ought to be. It's not possible for the powers of darkness to prevent the work of light from progressing. You see, this prayer is testimony to the fact that God was working in the life of this man. Even at that dark hour, here was this helpless individual Nailed to a cross, unable to do anything for himself. Couldn't move. He required help from out with himself. And he's crying out. It's no cry of despair. It wasn't even a cry for 
an improvement in his situation or a lessening of pain. It was no mere escapism, but at the very height of his suffering and great pain, facing certain death, that is this prayer offered. And I suggest the genuine mask of spiritual life and the work of grace. Remember me, Jesus. Remember me, unworthy as I am, convicted lawbreaker that I am, heinous sinner that I am. Oh, Jesus, remember me. And that brings me to my second point is his prayer is that demonst- demonstrates faith and exercise. Note how his prayer begins. Lord or Jesus, remember me. You can't say that his prayer is wordy. Very few words. Yet there is a, a profound depth and breadth to this prayer. It's a prayer full of thought. His petition is not unique to himself either. There are others in the Bible who use these very same words. The psalmist uses them more than once. Psalm 106, for example, Remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. Commentators tend to to apply these words in the life of the psalmist to the period when Israel was in captivity of Babylon, where by the rivers they sat and wept. Nehemiah also prays these words, Remember me, O my God, remember, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast of covenant love. And there is another example in the Bible of this prayer being offered, Remember me. He was a Nazareth from the womb. And despite that, he went greatly astray. As a consequence, you find him deprived of his, of his mighty strength. And the sad thing is, he wasn't aware of that fact. He did not know that the Lord had left him, and so the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza, bound him with bronze shackles, and he ground at the mill in the prison. Just a shadow of the man he was before, a blind, shackled prisoner. He was being used to feed his former enemies, the very enemies against whom he had waged a campaign of destruction. He ground at the mill in the prison. A man who had experienced the blessing of the Lord on more than one occasion, as well as the presence of the Lord. But as I said, he did not know that the Lord had left him. Going publicly astray is always food to the enemies of the gospel. They gloat. But this was still, remember, a man of God. And he prayed, O Lord God, please remember me. Please strengthen me only this once. Words of repentance, words full of anguish. It was a prayer of faith. How do we know? Because it was answered by God. And that's what we have here too in our text. A prayer of faith. It too was marvelously 
answered by the Lord. So his prayer demonstrates faith and exercise. His prayer is a mark of spiritual life. And finally his prayer reveals a depth of spiritual insight. In the wonderful, overruling, sovereign providence of God, this man is placed on a cross beside Jesus. He meets death with Christ physically beside him. And the words of his prayer, as far as we know, are the last words he utters in this life. But oh, have these words not borne testimony for over 2,000 years. You have to ask yourself, what prompted this prayer? Why do I ask the question? For the very reason that his, that his companion spoke in a very different way. You remember when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, the part of the, part, that part of the temptation used by Satan was this. If you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, two times Satan uses that. And those who are passers-by, we are told in Matthew's Gospel, also spoke in that way. If you are the Son of God, you can see how the forces of darkness are dictating what is spoken around the cross. And in Luke's account, the companion thief to this man who prays states, Are you not the Christ? In other words, if you are the Christ. But this man, unlike everyone else, he is praying, Lord or Jesus, remember me. At that very moment, Christ was in the, in the very depths of the valley of humiliation. In the bleak, inhospitable valley of death. And all that that entailed been revealed to him. No indication that he was a king. And yet this man prayed to him as the king of kings. What possessed this man to pray like this? Can we not say that he was given a different insight into this mysterious person who was being crucified beside him? The man who prayed, Jesus remember me, had new vision. Some would contend and go as far as to suggest that Christ was, was, was transformed. Just like he was transformed on the Mount of Transfiguration, that something similar happened here. I'm not too sure about that. But this I do know. When the grace of God in Christ flows into the soul of a man or a woman or a boy or a girl, your whole view of the Godhead is radically changed. And so it was in the life of this man. He had new sight as a direct consequence of the work of the Holy Spirit. He has seen a different crown on Jesus. Not the contemptuous, derisory crown of thorns, 
but his rightful crown of glory. Behind the humiliation of the cross, this man will see a shining throne. And his prayer makes it very obvious that he had no doubt about the kingdom. Why? Well, in my view, he glimpsed the glory of the king. You remember the shorter catechism asks the question, what offices does Christ execute as our Redeemer? And the answer the Reformers gave was Christ as our Redeemer executes the office of prophet, priest and king both in a state of humiliation and exaltation. Who is able to see that? In my view, only those whose eyes have been opened by the Lord himself. Look at how much progress or growth this man has made in such a short time. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. You know, we don't know what understanding or conception he had of the kingdom. Was he thinking of when Christ would come and the, and the, and the glorious majesty of his person in his second coming? It's difficult to say. But when he prays, remember me. Don't you think this is implied? Do not let me be parted from you. How can I be sure of that? From the very reply that Christ gave to this man. Remember, Christ is able to interpret and to analyze his petition. Remember how the psalmist puts it in my tongue before I speak, not any word can be, but altogether, O Lord, it is well known to thee. As one who is able to analyze, look at his reply. What does it say? Jesus doesn't say, I will remember you, etc. But this, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Did you know that? You will be with me. In other words, there was to be no parting. That's what the, this man desired. That's the assurance he received from Christ. You will be with me. Oh, how marvelously his prayer was answered. Despite the unusual meeting place, Christ in that meeting place was fulfilling what had been predicted by, you know, by the prophets about him. The thief was there on account of how he had until now conducted his life. He was receiving the just penalty for his misdeeds. And you can almost hear Christ saying, I am numbered among the transgressors, so that the transgressors might be numbered with me. You remember how the prophet Isaiah, how he concludes that marvelous chapter of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death, was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. And so he says in response to the prayer of this man, truly I say to you, you will be with me in paradise. You will be much, much closer than you are now. Why? Because a new union had been formed. The union of faith. 
There was harmony of mind and heart that only grace can bring. Christ was made precious to this man. The vast ocean of divine love had, had touched his life and was flowing into his heart. And that was just the beginning. You could say that the satisfaction in some ways swallowed up the bitterness of death for him. The sting of death was removed. The grave is robbed of its victory. You will be with me. His deepest desire is fulfilled. No delay in the matter. Today you will be with me. Reminds me of a man, of a story I heard about him. I never met him personally. He came from the district where I, where I now reside. And by all accounts, uh, he was regarded as someone who perhaps didn't have uh, the talents of his contemporaries. But on his deathbed, there were people in. And as people are prone to do, they were asking him how he was. And his response was this, oh, he said, he said to me, Today you will be with me in glory. And one of the neighbours who was in, and she was an old Christian, and she said, Oh my dear, she said, The Bible states it is paradise. And the dying man responded, It was glory, he said to me. It was glory, he said to me, and he did die that day. What a quick transformation in the life of the man on the cross. As he stepped out of nature into grace, and then stepped out of grace into glory. One moment surrounded by the hostile cries of the enemies of Christ, the next moment participating in the choral song of glory, the song of Moses on the Lamb. No more darkness for him, translated to the place where there is no need of sun or moon to shine, for the glory of God gives its light. And its lamp is the Lamb. An end to days of suffering, of sadness, of mourning and sorrow. Who would not wish to hear such reassuring words at the end of life's journey? Today you will be with me. That's heaven. To be where Jesus is. But to arrive there, we have to trust in him alone for salvation here in this life. There's no other way of getting there.
no other way of accessing this place, this radiant place. No other way of being with Jesus than by trusting in him alone here and now. Oh, can you find yourself today, tonight, among those who have the spirit of prayer, where faith is an exercise, where you are in possession of spiritual insight into the true identity of Jesus Christ. His prayer, a mark of spiritual life. His prayer demonstrates faith and exercise. His prayer reveals a depth of spiritual insight. Let us pray. O eternal God, we thank thee that thou art the instigator of prayer, that thou art the hearer and the answerer of prayer, and we thank thee for the glorious destination that awaits all who are in Christ, all who come in the penury of their emptiness and the emptiness of their penury to cry out to the one alone who is able to respond in such a positive manner and deliver from the forces and the power of darkness and sin and bring to be with himself. O Lord, forbid that none of us be strangers to this Jesus and the glory shall be thine. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Let us conclude.